Hey everyone, welcome back to Creating a Vegan World. Today we're speaking with Dr. Caroline Gordon, and she's a criminologist in the UK where she talks about animal welfare legislation, how certain companies could get around this, why the system's in place, and our conversation and transitions to things like lab-grown meat and how you could influence your friends and family to go vegan in a way where they're receptive to it. So I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did, and we're going to jump right into it. As a criminologist, I'm interested in how the systematic cruelty of farmed animals here in England and Wales is allowed to happen and to continue on such a widespread level. And so for me, it's useful to examine the legislation that is supposed to protect the welfare of farmed animals. Um, and I always like to begin by acknowledging that there is now widespread and legal recognition that an animals are sentient beings. So we know from all of the research that has done, especially on pigs, that they can and do experience pain and suffering. So I always like to start with that. Now, in England and Wales, we have two key pieces of legislation. We have the Animal Welfare Act and the Welfare of Farmed Animals Regulations. And the latter sets out the minimum standards of welfare. So for example, the animal should have a suitable diet and environment, they should have freedom to move, and that farmers should have regard for their physiological and ethological needs in accordance with scientific knowledge. So if we take pigs as the example, um, their physiological needs will be things like having a clean space, um, access to fresh water, their ethological needs, so things like being able to forage, root for food, and we know that pigs love to play. Now, under the legislation, under the Animal Welfare Act, it is an offence to cause and allow unnecessary suffering. Okay, so there's the key word, unnecessary suffering. Um, now, it also says that we should um, avoid suffering where it's avoidable. So therefore, this is the interesting thing, is that it's not strictly prohibited under the Animal Welfare Act. It's only when deemed unnecessary. Now, here's the other interesting thing. There's no clear definition of what unnecessary suffering means. However, there are some guidelines given to say how we um, should avoid unnecessary suffering and when it's okay, when suffering um, is necessary. Um, and one of them that I'm particularly interested in says that we have to consider whether the animal was suffering for a legitimate purpose. So in other words, was that suffering for the benefit of the animal or for the benefit of other animals. Now, that's where it becomes particularly relevant to the continuation and allowing of factory farms. Factory farms, like so many other countries in the world, are now the new norm. So in the UK, 85% of animals raised for human consumption um, are reared industrially. So that means very overcrowded conditions. And by being in very overcrowded conditions, they're not able to meet their physiological and ethological needs. So of course, there is immense suffering. Um, how do they overcome that? So 
the another really interesting aspect of the legislation is that we have we allow mutilation procedures so for example with pigs we're allowed to um, cut off their tails take out their teeth um, with birds we're allowed to de-beak them um, and all of that is allowed to happen without anaesthetic if the animal is under seven days old. Um, why that is, there's absolutely no scientific basis whatsoever as to why um, it's okay to do it without an anaesthetic if the animal's under seven days old, but not if they're eight days old. It's just simply, as far as I can see, based on a really erroneous assumption that somehow very, very young animals um, don't feel pain in the same way as ones that are over um, a week old. So therefore that kind of suffering that animals endure um, through those mutilation procedures is deemed under the legislation here in England and Wales as being necessary and unavoidable because if we cut off a pig's tail um, then that, and, and clip their teeth, that means that when they inevitably become bored in such overcrowded conditions, um, they can't bite each other's tails, which is exactly what happens when they become very bored and frustrated. And when they bite each other's tails, it inevitably draws blood and then that escalates to cannibalism. So that's how um, we get around the law um, with this kind of abuse of animals is that it is deemed necessary um, and unavoidable. It must be undertaken. In light of the overwhelming evidence that farmed animals are suffering so immensely um, and that those minimum standards where um, their physiological and ethological needs are just simply not being met, why is that allowed to happen? Um, and I think that there are two key reasons. And the first one will be no surprise to you, and that is the profit-driven agenda. Um, and this particular way of farming gives earning power to, to farmers. And I've looked at this research. There is plenty of research um, to support the view that economic disadvantages are a key consideration in farmers' decisions to implement welfare. So there we have it, greedy profitability literally depends on those unacceptable conditions. And you simply cannot produce those kinds of profit margins that they are producing at the moment unless you have that system and structure of factory farming. It's really simple as that, it's about money. Absolutely, and I remember, um... For people watching this, I feel like they had some context where when we first yeah. started speaking on LinkedIn, Caroline and I, we is through a veg news article about the Brave New Life project. And I interviewed someone who worked in a factory farm through this organization. And they're saying that the production lines have to be so fast that even the workers get injured. So the laws are based on the profit profits of the slaughterhouses and the corporations, not only animals hurting, but the workers as well. So that just kind of adds to what Caroline is saying about it's about profits first and that's why the system's in place. So sorry for interrupting, but I just wanted to interject really, that there. Not at all. It really highlights what you said, that welfare is secondary, um, if that. 
Um, now, the other, the second reason that I think that the suffering is allowed to happen and to continue on the widespread level that it is, is because of something called speciesism. Um, and speciesism is very simply, it means that us humans believe that we have greater moral rights and there's a prejudice um, and bias towards our own interests. We basically see ourselves as superior. And that unfortunately is absolutely inherent in us humans, um, historically and culturally it is. And we see our speciesist attitudes manifest through the anthropocentric nature of our criminal justice system. And what I mean by that is our laws and policy reflect our beliefs that humans are the most important entity in the universe. It's really all about um, favoring humans. Now, speciesism also actually extends to favoring some animals over others. So for example, if you're a cat, you're a dog or you're a horse, you're lucky, you're okay. Your fellow beings, your human um, fellow beings will look after you and protect you. Um, so people, for people to accept the same kind of cruelty to dogs, cats or horses would simply be unfathomable. So let's say, for example, now we said, right, well, you know what, the, the dog meat industry in the UK is really, really taking off. There's a really good market for it. Um, but don't worry, all of this is done really humanely. So um, one of the stunning and slaughtering processes will be to gas chamber the dogs. Um, and someone might argue, yeah, but hang on a minute, they, they feel like they're burning from the inside out and sometimes they might lose a limb where they're fighting and struggling to get out. Um, but then the argument could be, well, you know, but that only lasts for maybe 30 seconds, one minute. Well, we would have non-vegans protesting and doing marches and all sorts. But yet, what's so interesting is that that's what we do to 86% of pigs in the UK. Um, the stunning and slaughtering process is by way of CO2 gas. And yet pigs are equally sentient to, uh, to dogs that they can feel the same kind of pain and suffering. And there's evidence to also show that they exceed any intelligence to dogs as well. Um, so that for me is the two key reasons, the profit-driven profit agenda and the speciesism that is inherent in us humans. Now, some people will say, you know, I eat animals and I, and I really do care about animal welfare. And I'm always looking for the assurance scheme labels that are put on food. So I know where my food comes from. But unfortunately, what may come as a surprise to your to your audience um, is that undercover investigations here in the UK have shown by far that farms under assurance welfare schemes um, often fall well below the minimum standards of welfare. So we really have to question actually what those labels actually mean um, and whether they hold or to what extent they hold um, value. Now there has been some um, 
movement here since we left the EU in terms of um, future legislation. And we've now got the government's action plan for welfare. And very simply, some of the key things that they want to do in terms of farmed animals is um, to end live transport for slaughter and fattening. They want to examine the use of cages for laying hens and farrowing crates for pigs. Now, I think where you are, Andrew, in um, Australia, they're allowed to use battery cages, which was outlawed here um, back in 2012. But actually, if we really look at what the enriched cages means, it's really not, I, I can't personally see how that's any better because although they're housed with more birds, it's really the space that they've got is the size of a postcard. Um, what does free mate range mean? It means um, it can mean up to having 16,000 birds um, put under one roof. Um, again, that raises the question of whether that is really free range. So although, you know, it's good on one hand that the government seem to be taking this, the welfare issue seriously, um, history and experience tells us that it's not necessarily meaningful for those animals in terms of meeting their physiological and ethological needs as defined um, in our legislation. Um, and then I think where I go on from there is that against the backdrop of all this really, really good scientific knowledge about animal sentience and their physiological and ethological needs, there can be no good, no moral, no ethical and no legal reason to continue such systematic and abhorrent animal cruelty. And to do so actually is really short-sighted, never mind the market and the profitability that is there to be made. Um, it's so short-sighted from a global perspective because from a global perspective, animal agriculture, as you know, is the leading cause of climate change. The UK currently is not on track to meet its legal requirements to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 under the UK Climate Change Act. So radical action is required, which means adopting a plant-based diet and the restoration of agricultural land back to native forests to reduce um, the carbon dioxide removal to a meaningful degree. And of course, we mustn't forget the growing body of research um, that demonstrates the harm that animal products have to human health. Um, for example, the promotion of some cancers. We've got the real risk and the real problem of antibiotic resistance heading our way. And of course, um, the risk of future pandemics. Now, the problem is, you've, and I'd be interested to hear what your experiences have been with this. Um, I really thought that once I became vegan and I found out about these wide scale atrocities that that people would um, think my way to as soon as I told them about it, that they would immediately um, turn to a vegan plant-based lifestyle as soon as I told them what was happening. 
Um, I really thought that once you tell people that, hey, did you know that um, red and processed meat has been declared a group one carcinogen by the World Health Organization, um, that they would also listen to that. Um, that when you tell people about the devastating impact that it has on climate change, that they would, um, again, that their ears would really prick up to that. And they don't, you know, not, not, not necessarily. It will with some people, but not all people. That's my experience as well, where it's not until it really hits you emotionally before people are changed. Because before mm -hmm. doing Creating a Vegan World, I worked in marketing. I studied psychology, personal development. And even myself, it wasn't until I got diagnosed with high triglycerides and got a prescription medication assigned to me with side effects. It's when that fear built up. That's when I switched from vegan to whole food plant-based for the three weeks after that. Like I was 100% or 95%. And when that pain went away and emotional pain, I drifted back to eating more of the vegan junk food. So I've been vegan for four years, but even when it comes to healthy eating, and I just interviewed someone else, I, they're from the UK where we're talking about climate change where mm. myself doing this channel being vegan caring about the environment it's like that emotional impact is really not there and i found like that's the main thing that gets people to actually make the change and like all the logical information it's really difficult especially even for people that care about a logical level yeah absolutely yeah. and i watched one of your interviews actually where you talked about some of the health health issues that you that you encountered um and for me personally i eat um a strictly whole foods plant-based diet i don't eat any of the 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 junk stuff but as far as i'm concerned if the junk stuff gets people away from the animal cruelty then i'm all for it fill your boots I agree. absolutely <laughs> Um, and, and like you, hopefully, with, when people run out of luck with their health, then that's when they might start to make an even better transition. I'm really interested in the name of your documentary, Creating a Vegan World, because I think that that really gets us to start thinking about solutions. And if we think that it can be very difficult to get people to change when we talk to them about animal welfare issues, when we talk to them about their health, when we talk to them about climate change, we need to start looking at other ways. And that's not to negate some of the brilliant work that some um, advocates have done. So for example, really well-known ones like um, Joey Carbstrong, James Aspey, Earthling Ed, they have done an astounding job at raising awareness, educating people, and helping people to transition, you know, myself included in that. Um, but we need more than that, given the climate catastrophe that we're in um, and the widespread cruelty that's going on, we really do need more than that. Absolutely. Now, what I'm interested in as well is that, um, have you heard of Rethink X? It's an independent- Sounds familiar, but I haven't, can you uh, enlighten us? <laughs> Yeah, it's, um, it, it's really, their website is really fascinating. They're an independent think tank um, who launched a report on the future of animal agriculture. And they've launched several different reports forecasting the future of like transportation and like I say, animal agriculture. And um, 
just as a little bit of a, a backdrop to that, the, the research shows over and over again that what really informs people's food choices is cost, convenience and taste. If it's a lower price, if it's convenient and it tastes good, the research tells us that that's where people's attentions will be directed to. Now, the really good news is, is that this um, report that was launched by RethinkX um, talk about price parity between meat-based products and plant-based products. And um, the authors of that report say that price parity is coming anywhere between now and 2023. Um, where plant-based products will become equal to or lower than meat-based products. And of course, we know all the time that we've got plant-based cooks and chefs coming out with some of the most amazing um, meals that, are, that really do um, top on convenience and taste. So that's really, really good news. Now, what they forecast in Rethink X is that when price parity happens, that's, it's at that point that we are going to see a huge tipping of the scales where sales of plant-based foods will grow tremendously. They even forecast as well in the US that by 2030, demand for cow products would have fallen by 70%. Um, rendering the US cattle industry bankrupt. Um, but for them, that is really where we are going to see the change happen, is this price parity. It's really going to tip the scales. And the great news is, is that that is, if they are right, that is literally within our sight between now and the next couple of years. And to quote um, one of the things that Rethink X say is they say, we are on the cusp as the, of the fastest, deepest, most consequential disruption of agriculture in history. Wow. It's funny, um, you mentioned uh, the price thing because my first interview on this channel is with David Simon, who's author of Meatonomics. And we talked about that an extent where there's different ways to get the prices down, such as more subsidies going towards plant-based. And I'm planning on releasing a documentary in 2023 if things work out as planned. And if mm -hmm. that happens and price party happens before then, it's like everything that I'm trying to say is going to happen in the future already happened, which is great news for what we're trying to accomplish. It really is. That's such a great idea to have one come out a couple of years later to see what's happened since the first one. Mm -hmm. And then um, I think one of the bigger things we we're talking about before we we're doing this interview planning, it is like the systems changes, the, uh, I guess the criminal justice system, justice system in the UK, there's the problems and there's the different actors such as the meat industry going to change laws for profit, the criminal justice system, they're not really enforcing it like they should. And they're just kind yeah. of like doing things that were uh, kind of like putting on a front where the battery cages where it's like it's a better sounding name like free range but it doesn't make a difference so if we're looking globally like what types of solutions have you seen work in your area or in your studies that can help shift laws in the direction in favor of what we're going for 
I really haven't seen any legislation or certainly none that I'm aware of that will shift us towards where we want to go to. Um, I've only ever seen um, research reports that um, that give us the knowledge that should underpin future legislation, which is related to curtailing deforestation and climate change. Um, as far as the legislation relating to animal welfare goes, I've not seen anything that I'm satisfied with. Have, have you? Not so much. I just see the actors going into play to kind of like set the stage for her. So I mentioned Amber Hurst. I interviewed her. She's a MP in Sydney, Australia, where having the Animal Justice Party in place, they're, they're mm -hmm. fighting to make changes. And as well as I interviewed the vegan lobbying organization in the US, where pretty much they're trying to shift government subsidies from meat industry to plant-based. So yeah. while some of these changes haven't happened yet, they're in place to start moving. Yeah, I'm not aware of um, anything and certainly not here. My specific interest is <clears throat> um, about farmed animals. Um, and where we are with that is that it's trying to create a system that maintains animal agriculture. And for me, as an abolitionist, that's, you know, something like that is never going to be satisfactory or convince me that it's going to be effective. Definitely. There's, are you familiar with the cellular-based agriculture industry? The, the, the lab-grown meat? Yes. Um, the one thing I'd love to research more on is in, I think, Singapore, they already made it legal to sell lab-grown meat. So people are not familiar with this listening, where it's, they take like, there's different ways to do it. There's the biopsy or like taking a cell from a chicken feather, or yes. there's the one that doesn't touch animals at all. You get a line of code of DNA from a database mm -hmm. in the computer. And then they use like fungi or some type of mushroom to actually grow real meat. It's actually real meat, but without harming the animals. Whereas I know in the future, I see that as a growing industry. I invested in there's um, Eat Beyond Global as a stock, I guess an ETF yeah. in the US where they invest in that type of thing early stage. And I see it as a 10 year investment, but even in Singapore, they make it legal. So you could go to a restaurant, you could eat actual meat without yeah. any slaughter of animals. I wouldn't do it myself as a vegan, but I kind of Same. feel while we're trying to dismantle or transform or chip away at the animal ag system, this is going up. So even the people that won't stop eating animals, it's the same thing, but no antibiotic resistant bacteria. So um, I'd love exactly. to- I, I, I'm so, And I'd be really interesting. I, I, I can't see any legislation here about um, lab grown meat. I, I'd be particularly interested to see what um, legislation there might be around the research ethics side of it. I don't know. Um, I do know that there is some ethical complications in terms of how some of it has grown. For example, taking um, serum from fetal bovine hearts, I think it is. Um, but there is a there there are some companies now saying that they don't need to do that that they don't need to get fetal bovine serum to grow the cells. If there is a way that they can, like you're saying, that they can do that ethically, again, great, you know, do it. Personally, for me, it's, it's such a moral dilemma because I don't like anything that 
reinforces the idea of eating animals. However, being realistic, um, I think that that is probably the most satisfactory way to go, that if it doesn't harm animals, um, and there's also been a couple of research reports on it to show that it is significantly less harmful to the climate um, and that that is going to be the future. I do know there's been some concern around how they label it. They might have to label it as genetically modified, but I think some companies are finding ways so that it's not genetically modified because you can imagine that consumers will go, oh, I'm not eating that, it's genetically modified um, without actually comparing it to what, what they're consuming with other animal products. Yeah, the side-by-side -side comparison where like, even before I went vegan, it's like something might seem off like it, what do you call it, cancer in the ears, but then side-by-side -side with like animal products, they do like chlorine baths, other chemicals and all this other stuff compared to a small risk for that. But um, either way, I hope it's staying off. And it's funny you mentioned um, the different ethical concerns about like, for example, taking a biopsy of one chicken, if it'll save yeah. the lives of millions or billions of chickens, like there's the abolitionist side where we don't want to do that. And I feel, I think in Paul Shapiro's book, I interviewed him, his book of mm -hmm. clean meat. I think it was through that oh, yeah. where they said in the U, it's either in the UK or the EU, there was some law that was restricting that ability. And yet here we are talking where the animal ag industry, they just, the laws are even worse than that. So it's a lot of things to figure out. Yeah. I don't have a, a solution. Yeah, but um, I think you're absolutely right. I think that those are the two key um, ways forward is price parity driving the cost of plant-based foods down. Um, we have no problem with them being delicious because they are, um, and they're convenient too. And then also the growth of, um, of, of lab-grown meat. You know, if it, if it takes away the large-scale cruelty that's going on, then I'm all for it. Is there any other things you want to talk about or any, any like, is there like, a website or a social media page anyone watching this might want to visit you at? Um, I'm uh, available on LinkedIn. I'm also part of the, um, the Vegan Society. And I have to say their website is absolutely fantastic for um, producing all kinds of reports that really target those three areas. So um animal welfare um the environment and also health um so there's research reports based on um looking at policy and practice and future trends you you can get so much from that website it is really really good they're such a, a great organization um i myself i'm um, a research committee member for the vegan society and um and I've written a blog for them and an article on the dairy industry in the UK. So for any of the audience who are um, watching from the UK, that's the Vegan Society is a really great place to start. Anything that's like blocking, like getting in the way of the world being vegan or any solutions that you feel you haven't seen yet? Is there anything out there that you've seen that or that you could think of that maybe people watching this could step up and start addressing? Yeah, I, I mean, it's the... I think it really goes back to 
what I was saying before, what some of the, the key problems are in or the barriers, if you like, to creating um, a vegan world, which is the profitability for the market, um, our speciesism. But also, if I were to add a third one, Andrew, I would, I would really say that it's about people not having the knowledge and the awareness now, for all the things that we've been talking about, all of this is, is not new to us. It's, we've known it for a long time. Um, but to the general public, they're, they're not so knowledgeable about this kind of stuff. So when I talked about the legislation that's, that's probably coming in the UK about animal welfare, consumers believe that and in an age of so much information people don't know what is true and what isn't true anymore and so if they see a government report that is saying hey look at what we're doing here for animal welfare we're looking at getting rid of farrowing crates for for pigs and we're we're reviewing the use of um cages for hens that all sounds really good to the unknowledgeable person um, and so for me, that is, it's the dissemination of information that is a real problem. And as you know, we have a great barrier in just our name as being vegan. Um, you know yourself, you tell people that um, you're vegan and then that's it. Their eyes kind of glaze over and they go, oh God, you know, you're one of them. That's a huge barrier. That's a really huge barrier. And for me, <clears throat> the way forward with that is, I hate saying this, but it's, it's, it's time. It's as more and more people um, gradually make that shift and it becomes bigger and bigger. Um, I always think that one useful way that I can do myself as an individual is to show the trend of um, eating animal products as becoming antisocial. So a bit like, you know, just before smoking in public was outlawed. So for example, one of the things that I won't do anymore is I won't join in on barbecues. If I'm invited to anything like that, I won't do it. Um, if we go out for a meal, I won't do it unless it's to a vegan restaurant. And for me, that's really giving the people who I know and who like me that very clear message that there's something wrong with what you're doing here. There's something that's unethical and immoral. And <clears throat> that might help people to start tuning in and to questioning. So sorry, it was I went off on a little bit of a tangent there, but... Um, no, that's great information. Yeah, just, those, are the, those are the barriers. And what yeah. we can do as individuals. And I'm, I'm a, um, you know, Joey Carbstrong, the um, international advocate, has really influenced me in terms of what he says about once we see what the reality is of industrial farming, we have a moral obligation Um to say something and to not be silent. And when you're talking about barriers, about how to um, help people transition, I think that that could be a significant barrier is that people don't want to 
be vocal about it because they know the kind of stigma that surrounds the name vegan. And that's kind of what we want to encourage advocates to move away from. Definitely. Something amazing happened on recent interviews. I spoke with two people where they said veganism in their circles, it used to be associated with what we're talking about. Like, oh, you're vegan. Whereas now sometimes they get the perception of it's, it's trending. It's like, it's new, it's healthy. And like some people are perceiving it that way. So that tipping point is we're getting closer there. And um, two things I want to comment on based on what you said, I think people would love to hear this where number one is like how we get through to people. Or I mentioned in this interview where there's that the pain, like when I was diagnosed with the high triglycerides and the medication, yeah. like that pain caused me to go from vegan to whole foods plant-based for a while. But before that, I talk in my interviews where the reason I went vegan was to be part of a community I invited to uh, potlucks in Boulder, Colorado. It was like that social community, 30 vegans showed up every Saturday night. So really understanding human behaviors and like sales psychology, I studied a lot of that, where there's fundamental drivers of human behavior. So there's towards, in a way, there's the pain as well as the moving towards the social aspect or different ways to do it. So people studying psychology, there's a book called Cashvertising, which oh, is a yeah. marketing sales book. They talk about the basic fundamental human desires. And there's, I think it's called the Life Force Eight. There's like eight of them. And then myself as a marketer, I studied it. And it's a really great way to get through to people in different ways. And the final thing you commented on was uh, when people invite you to like barbecues or restaurants, mm-hmm. where I know a lot of people from when I was back in Colorado, they refuse to sit at a dinner table where animal products are being eaten, where my personal approach, I want to be the beacon of light. So if I go out to a restaurant with friends and I order delicious vegan meal and they're not, maybe if they see that, that might inspire them. And I think the biggest thought that came to mind when you were speaking is it's two different ways. I don't see it as a right or wrong way. There's what millions and millions of vegans in the world, plenty of activists and sometimes there's a lot of infighting in the vegan activist community where like this way's right this way's right where we honestly don't know and my philosophy is we're all doing our best in different ways to get through different people so that's just my takeaways from it yeah you're you're absolutely right it's it's all down to your personal preference and and also you know your own friends you know what might be um influential to them you know what they they might listen to what we what we do know that tends to not work well is if we give people a spiel of all the facts and the figures um and again their eyes glaze over and they're thinking about the shopping list and oh how can i change the subject how can i get away um and if you look very closely at what the um advocates do is that they ask questions because when you ask the person questions, they've got to think about, they've got to think about it um, and come to their own conclusions. Um, so I think that that's a really good way if we're thinking about pushing forward to creating a vegan world. Um, it's about that Socratic questioning and making people think. Um, but nobody you know, likes to be told that they are complicit to um, such a terrible system um, that, you know, you are the oppressor. Nobody wants to hear that. Um, And so one way around that is to ask them the questions so that they can 
they can make those conclusions themselves. That's great advice. And I went to some cubes of truth here in Sydney and like their approach is always ask questions. So I'm glad that yeah. this information is going to the rest of the world. Yeah, absolutely. And it's sometimes it's really difficult to do. It's really difficult because you just want to say, look, you know, did you know that 86% of pigs are being gas chambered and, um, and, and, and everything else. But, um, I think with practice, 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 you can you can get better at your your skills in advocating for animals, um, and we have to do it because the beings that we are advocating for, you know, don't have that voice, and we need to do a good job for them. Absolutely, I remember some activists they have a whole training platform for communication skills. We have to get out of our comfort zone and learn the system like in sales they say what's in it for me and i always i made that mistake when i was doing the cubes of truth is like i try to give them the facts my information their eyes roll over but i keep going so take a step back <laughs> what actually works what's effective learning the right ways and there's different ways of doing it yes yeah they're really and, and you know we're not none of us are perfect and it's such an emotive topic and when we know what we know it's very, very difficult to not get upset or mad when somebody um, provokes us. Um, you know, we've, we've heard all of the jokes before. We've had, oh, how, how are you, Caroline? I'm just enjoying my big steak burger. You know, it, we've all had that. Um, and it's only through practice, and you've heard it a million times, that you can act, not react. 